Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like geography, the visual arts, performing arts, storytelling, and literature. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Mark Marino and Leonardo Flores, both with the Electronic Literature Organization. Leonardo Flores is chair of the English department at Appalachian State University. Author and critic Mark Marino recently published Critical Code Studies at MIT Press and produces crowdsourced literature with Meanwhile NetProv Studios. Mark, Leo, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we get into some of the nitty-gritty of how you all work towards creating electronic literature, fostering electronic literature, some of the tools and techniques, I'd like to sort of just ask you both a personal question, which is, how did you both get to be where you are now, being maybe evangelists for electronic literature and fostering electronic literature? What was the path that brought you to doing this work now at this time in this place? You're asking for my origin story, like I'm a superhero. Well, you know, as a kid growing up in Puerto Rico in the 80s, I was a teenager. I learned to program on the Apple IIe computer at school. I would write little programs in BASIC and make a word jump across the screen and do all kinds of random generation with that. I didn't know I was creating electronic literature at the time. I didn't have a concept of it. I was studying English in an English department when I went to college in the late 80s, very early 90s, and I studied literature. I fell in love with comics along the way. I was really interested in the multimodality image and text kind of working together, and went on to go do a master's degree at Bowling Green State University in English, but I wrote my master's thesis on Neil Gaiman's comics. In the 90s, I did a lot of research on comics, but also fell in love with film as a medium, because here you have image, voice, sound, camera, right? And it's a time-based medium. And so when I went to go do my PhD, I went to University of Maryland, and I was really interested in studying with a professor that was famous for his work on Stanley Kubrick. When I got there, the professor was not there. He had been recruited and gone off to California. Then I enrolled in a course uh, with Neil Freistadt where I first saw electronic literature, and it all clicked. My programming, my fascination with multimodality, my fascination with time-based media, and I just fell in love with the thing, and I just decided to delve in and go deep. What really got me to evangelizing was in 2011, I found out I had been awarded a Fulbright to go to University of Bergen to teach and do research on electronic literature. And so I had this inspiration that I would read one e-poem per day, and I would write something short and publish it in a blog every day. And I started a daily blogging project called I Love ePoetry. You can still find it out there under iloveepoetry.org. And I did it for 500 days in a row, not missing a day. I immersed myself. I built an audience. I later invited other collaborators. 
that really got me going in terms of evangelizing and sharing electronic literature. In doing those kind of short entries that became this encyclopedic resource, I really kind of uh, made a voice for myself, and it has led to many great things. And Mark, what about you? So what's your origin story, to use Leo's phrase? So I was bit by a radioactive bug of electronic literature, I guess. When, <laughs> when I was growing up, I'm similar in age. I'm younger than Leo, but I'm similar in age to Leo. I had also an early home computer, and I played a lot of interactive fiction games made by Infocom. Also, when my brother and I, I have an older brother, and we would do little experiments and basic, like, put the lyrics to Elvis songs to display in time with the recording as it played. I spent far too long doing things like that. And when I went to college, there actually almost was a major in electronic literature. I, I went to Brown University, and there's a fellow there named George Landau who was teaching a course in hypertext theory which showed how literary hypertext was, in his mind, the embodiment of a lot of post-structuralist theory. So all the things about text being decentered, or the works of Roland Barthes. David Foster Wallace. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And also there was this postmodernist who's still alive named Robert Coover, who was teaching classes in hypertext writing. I didn't take that class. I took the theory class. I was kind of jealous of the theory class. They had this thing called the Hypertext Hotel, where everybody would write different rooms of the hotel and characters would move from room to room. I mean, these things would later come to inspire the work that I would do in NetProv. And he had this conference called Unspeakable Acts on Natural Practices, where Kathy Acker was there, among other people. It was just like a phenomenal event that just blew my mind with everything that was going on there. So I got an MFA in fiction writing at Notre Dame, and I remember saying, hey, can I do hypertext here? And everyone just shook their heads and shrugged a little bit, and they taught me how to write fiction, of course. And I came out to Los Angeles in the late 90s, and I started this humor magazine with some friends of mine who I'd been in sketch comedy troops about. And I guess I should say that I think in addition to my literary training, my theatrical training and improv were always a big part of what caused me to want to you know, enter into this particular collaborative creative medium. So we started this online magazine called Bunk Magazine, where our goal was to create experiments and humor that we had never seen the likes of before that would be interactive in all of these ways, in satirical, you know, parodies, things like that. But in any case, I found myself in grad school once more. I met this amazing person, took a class with N. Catherine Hales and a guy named Bill Seaman, and they opened my mind to the current world of digital literature. There I met my later collaborators, Jessica Pressman and Jeremy Douglas. Jeremy and I would form a blog called Writer Response Theory. So similar to Leo, we wanted to learn about things, so we sort of blogged our way into it when blogging was more of a thing. Found myself in grad school at UC Riverside, where I ended up focusing on chatbots for my dissertation. Along the way, in about 2002, I went to my first ELO conference, which was state-of-the-art held at UCLA, and saw some, again, more works, including a presentation by my now writing partner, Rob Wittig. And then, similar to Leo, it wouldn't be until 2011 when I would end up as a Fulbright specialist in Bergen, where I would bump into Rob Wittig again that we started dreaming up NetProv together or realizing we had been dreaming up NetProv for a long time. It was years earlier that I continued to go to the Electronic Literature Organization events, 
So a combination of just my explosive love for everything that I had encountered through that organization and the fact that my parents are both public relations professionals led to my evangelizing to this date. Since 2008, I've been the director of communications for the organization. And if you haven't heard of it yet, if your listeners haven't heard of it yet, I take that as a personal failure. So I'm trying to correct that one podcast at a time. And that's the Electronic Literature Organization, ELO. We've heard the term now and the name a few times in our earlier segments, NetProv. What's NetProv? Well, we like to change the definition pretty much every time we say it, but we'll say that it's networked collaborative online writing. And that might take the form of collaborative writing games analogous to role-playing games or more like parlor games or poetry games. Quick example, One Week No Tech, a fictional imaginary digital detox where we had people imagine giving up social media and digital technology for a week and tweeting about every moment of it. (laughs) (laughs) Inspired by people's tendencies to go off into nature and see beautiful vistas and to finally be away from everyone and to say, I'm finally alone, and then to snap that picture and share it on social media. Would you all just tell us a little bit about the work of the Electronic Literature Association? Is it just in the U.S.? I mean, you both talked about going to Bergen. This organization started in the U.S. in the very late 20th century, but it immediately found like-minded partners and members all over France, England, Spain, different parts of Latin America, And it has been growing and growing and growing. It's a registered nonprofit in the United States. The main mission of the organization is to promote and nurture the study and creation of electronic literature. We have developed a number of activities over the years to help do that. For instance, we have white papers on preservation and archiving. We have built an amazing archive and museum called The Next, and that is an amazing space that you all need to visit. The work itself is preserved in our servers, sometimes video and photo documentation, that kind of thing. And then this is shared open access to the world. So in addition to what Leo mentioned, we have the Electronic Literature Directory, which is another resource that is analogous to what Leo was describing he was doing on iHeart ePoetry. We have the Cell Project, which is, uh, let's say, a mothership of directories that are all building knowledge bases of work in electronic literature. And, of course, we have our annual conference, which for the past two years has been all online, but very possibly this coming May will happen online and at Como Italy. And, of course, all those endeavors meant to preserve, circulate, promote the community, the artists, the criticism of electronic literature. The promoting it and talking about the current state of the art is one thing, but I hadn't even thought about preservation. 25 years ago, if you wrote a book, then there was a book on acid-free paper, and most likely I could pull that book off the shelf in 100 years and read the same words, but... With the electronic stuff, it's like you guys were talking about. Some of my favorite artistic works of the late 20th century were appearing online in technologies that don't run anymore. Like, how do I pull that off the shelf and revisit that artwork? 
You need to talk to Dini Gregor and her team. They're doing amazing work in preservation. She is leading the field, really, with the project The Next. So I really invite you to check it out. So that's the irony, right? You have these artists working in this bleeding-edge technology, right? The state of the art, the latest of the latest. And of course, you know, a year from now, people may not be able to access that very same thing. ELO has developed some best practices. There's a wonderful document called Acid Free Bits, which gives some guidelines to artists on how to create using open source tools, open access, and then maybe relying a little bit more on code and less on software where possible, right? That's kind of the trap many of us fell into with Flash. And if we can get people writing in JavaScript and HTML5, whatever, there might be some longevity. You know, when you're creating art on other people's corporate platforms, right? So Rob and I do a lot of our work on Twitter, and then Twitter changes its algorithm. We write something on Facebook, and then Facebook changes its algorithm. Suddenly, those things become inaccessible. Although, I'm okay with that hazard. There's a part of me that wants to see everything preserved, and another part that realizes that I'm making Zen gardens. And that's okay with me. If somebody hearing this says, this is so cool, and I totally want to check out the conference or participate in a NetProv or read more, where would you point people? Or what would you recommend as a good entry-level activity? One of my favorites is using this resource called Cheap Bots Done Quick. V. Buckingham in England, they created this resource. And what it does, all you need is a Twitter account. You connect it to Cheap Bots Done Quick. It's free. And you create the script. Super simple. It has the ability to create some parameters. And boop, you can launch your bot. And I use that to create all kinds of bots. One of my favorite practitioners of that is Nora Reed, who has created bots like Endless Scream. Every 10 minutes, it screams on Twitter. <laughs> right? But also has one called Think Peace Bot that generates the headlines of think pieces published in, you know, New York Times or whatever. There are just so many wonderful things. One of my recent bots is the Taco Hell Menu bot. It's a parody of Taco Bell, the most combinatorial of fast food joints. They'll mix anything with anything to create a new product. And so every couple of hours, it generates a new menu item and a pitch for it. You know, like the Cheetos Carnitas Taco. I love it. I love it. You know, I think Twine is a very accessible tool. Something you can use the online version if you'd like, just a little Googling around. For someone who is totally ignorant, Twine is... Twine is a storytelling tool for making hypertext, so making things connected by links, very simple web pages. That's a tool that people can usually pick up without much difficulty. You know, then maybe a little bit more might be trying your hand at a Taroko Gorge. That's not all that difficult. Check out the Meanwhile NetProv Studio because about three times a year we run a NetProv that usually requires just maybe like a Twitter account or whatever platform we're using. Those are open to anyone to participate in. You know, if you want to go beyond Twine, I'm very fond of one called Ink, which is another scripting language for writing interactive fiction. I-N-K or I-N-C? I-N-K, Ink, yes. 
I would say it is possible that there are more tools at people's disposal than they might think. Obviously, from the NetProf standpoint, you can create digital literature in your Excel spreadsheet if you wish. But back in the bunk days, I did keep a little Confederacy of Dunces inspired piece called Journal of a Working Boy. And it was a little diary written in an Excel spreadsheet. He was my version of Ignatius. And he would just complain about his colleagues in the digital era. I hate to say it, it is possible when you're sending GIFs in your text messages, you play around with some emojis, you're already engaging in this mode. And this is just maybe extending it out a little bit further. Go out and check the electronic literature collections and you can see what people can do when they have a little bit more time, perhaps. The people are welcome to join the organization, of course. They can join our Facebook group, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. I don't think we have a TikTok just yet. But also we host events as well. We host a new event called First Fridays that operate out of our Discord and members are invited to those. We often have book launches and things like that as well at those. And then we have Second Tuesday Salons that we don't sponsor, but that we promote by Dina Larson. We're here for anyone who's interested at whatever level. And if nothing else, I hope people would hear this series of conversations as an invitation, as a provocation, and hopefully some inspiration to do some digital making or some digital reading. I'll add, people are already doing this. That's part of the idea of the third generation of electronic literature. People, when they use Instagram or use TikTok, right, they take a little video, they take an image, and then they start writing on it. They're not writing on the page. They're writing on images. They're writing on video. They're putting text that isn't behaving the way text behaves on the page. It dances around. It glitters. It does other things. Almost all those platforms still call them stories. Yeah, yeah. Stories are real. Right, right. But these are things that I'm pretty sure we would have recognized as video art a few decades ago, right? We would have called this like visual poetry or something like that back in the day. And then also realizing that even though there are conventions to using even those platforms, again, they've only existed for the blink of an eye, just do something else with them and you're already going to be pushing things in an interesting direction. How could there be rules to what an Instagram post needs to be at this point? I don't understand that. Who's enforcing that? Who's the Emily Post of Instagram? I don't understand. And even basic tools... PowerPoint. Use PowerPoint as a writing tool to create animations. Like Tan Lin creates sophisticated animations using PowerPoint and then letting it run with, I don't know, 30, 40 frames per second. Each slide is a frame and now it's being used as a cinematic composition. I have a micro novel that I publish one sentence at a time in my email signature. So tell me which part of the medium we're not allowed to use to write in, and I'm going to write in it. Leo, Mark, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about the Electronic Literature Organization and both of your work in this relatively new medium and paradigm. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. And if you would like more information about our guest work, you can visit their organization. That's eliterature.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James White, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.